0: We are back in action after a year's hiatus. Now, you might be wondering what I'm talking about because we've been doing podcasts like all year long. But I'm talking about something important here. If you'll remember, Knob Creek single barrel nine-year bourbon. We declared it the official uh, bourbon of the uh, adult music podcast. And then they took it off the shelves and we didn't have it all year 2023. Well, now it's 2024. And I found it in one of the liquor shops. Look at that. (laughs) But it's not everywhere, it's only in this one place. I don't know why, and they had a lot of it too.
1: I need to procure some of that because, well I have Mm. two bottles of it, which Mm. amazingly I've just sat on for more than a year. I just see it glistening in the cabinet there. Right. If the end of the world comes or something, at least I can go out in style. But now if you've been able to buy a bottle of it, I'm gonna have to. uh,
0: Yeah, but it's only in that one place. I'm wondering if they didn't store it away and just sort of suddenly take it out. mm. I wonder if it's actually back in action because it's not in the other liquor stores. I don't know what's going Um, on with that. I opened the bottle. It's got that wax top on it. Right. And it's got like a cap that's connected to a cork. And the cap broke off the cork. I had to get a corkscrew to pull it out. (laughs) So now the cork is unusable. But luckily I have these like water bottle closers that I was able to cap the bottle with so it'll stay fresh. All right. I'm going to have to drink it fast, I guess.
1: The official drink of adult music is now back on the shelves, hopefully. So that's a good
0: sign for 2024. It'll be in use for the next two months on the uh, podcast. (laughs) I'll wait for the jazz section. I want to say something before we do the uh, intros and stuff. Um, If you're looking for the proper booze to drink (laughs) while you're listening to the music we're recommending, I recommend brandy and cognac brandy especially. It could be Armagnac too for the classical music if you're really more into classical music. I guess whiskey and bourbon are more of a jazz drink. You could do wine, too, for classical.
1: Well, I'm going with just water this time, because uh, usually if I drink during the classical part, I will slur my words when we get to the jazz half, so...
0: See, I guess I planned this out well, because I could do the classical part, and then I can uh, start drinking my my bourbon while you're doing the jazz part. Yeah, that works better for you. Then I come in with these scintillating comments, you know, that (laughs) everybody wishes I hadn't made, so... (laughs) edit that out yeah
1: we're here on episode 152 of adult music that's the podcast with music for the mature mind bringing you recent releases in both classical and jazz music three of each every week before we get into this episode's contents i want to give a thanks to drummer gaz hughes over in the uk for sharing our episode last week if you haven't heard it yet be sure to check out his latest release over there nuclear bebopalypse
0: yeah that's a great title from the gaz hughes trio Good record, too. We liked it a lot. It was really good. I will have to pick that one up.
1: Upping the ante on the compositions and yeah. uh, getting new ideas in there. So check that out. Before we get into uh, this evening's uh, program, we've got a little bit of sad news. Let me uh, get over to the piano here. And probably you've seen the news, but if not...
0: Yeah, the uh, conductor, Seiji Ozawa, has died at age 88. He was Japanese, and uh, he spent most of his career in the United States. Yeah, He died on Tuesday, February 6th, at his home in Tokyo of heart failure. He was 88 years old, as I said. And I remember him because I went to school at Boston University, and he conducted the Boston Symphony Orchestra... He was their um, artistic director or music director, sorry, for 29 years. Wow. That's a long time. He was appointed in 1973. And I guess what's was, it was uh, 29 years. That's until 2003. Man. Amazing, that's a yeah. Long time. 2002, I guess that would be. Right. So he was there the entire time I was there. He had already been there for 10 years. So he was a fixture. Every time you would go to the uh, Symphony Hall, you'd pretty much hear him conduct or some guest conductor. You know, right. he wasn't always there. So I just got kind of used to having him around, I guess. Yeah. Thieves, another one of these guys that just studied with everyone who was anyone in the 20th century, uh, Charles Munch, Pierre Monteux, Herbert von Karajan, And then he drew uh, Leonard Bernstein's attention and Bernstein got him to conduct at the New York Philharmonic. And then he got the position for the BSO. Right. He was at Tanglewood a lot. I mean, but he was just a fixture in the uh, East Coast.
1: He was a real champion of 20th century music too. And he had a lot of premier performances, I know.
0: Yeah, he was a very busy man. And then he went back to Japan, I think, uh, towards the end and started conducting there. He spent most of his career in America with all the the big names in them, conducting. Boy, really something.
1: I grew up with, you know, when I was a teenager, you always hear about his name.
0: I never had many records that he... uh,
1: A few, yeah. There were
0: a few, and they were kind of avant-garde ones, too. I think he did some Messiaen. Yes, he uh, did, yes. Yeah, so that was some of my first exposure to Messiaen's music was... Oh, so he really took on challenges. He he played a yes. lot of challenging music. So rest in peace to him. He really was a giant of the 20th century, and also the uh, first really internationally known Japanese conductor. Yeah, and still to this day, probably the most famous one.
1: All right. Well, tonight we've got a special program of winter winds. Yeah, it's going to be flute, lots of clarinet, good old tenor sax, and something a bit more exotic too.
0: Yeah, that's going to be in the jazz, though. (laughs) As always, in the episode description,
1: you'll find links to Spotify and Apple Music for all the music we'll discuss. And at the top of the description, there's a link to the full episode playlist that's all the music in one place on Deezer, CD-quality streaming music from France. You can listen to the podcast on Deezer as well if you want to get everything in one place. Now, if you can't see the full description or the recording list or links don't show up easily on whatever app or platform you listen to us on, You can always come over and check us out on our host site. That's podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com, where everything is easy to follow. If you enjoy the podcast, please follow or subscribe wherever you listen to us. Tell a music-loving friend. Help us grow our audience. If you take a moment also to give us a ranking or write a short review, that helps us get listed in the music category recommendations. Another way we can get more listeners. Also come over and follow us on our Facebook page to get extra info and more new releases throughout the week see our handsome faces there leave a message or comment and if you'd like to contact us directly with any comments or questions our email address is adult music podcast that's all one word at gmail.com we also want to give a shout out to our friends over at the same difference to jazz fans one jazz standard podcast that's aj and johnny In every episode, they look at one jazz standard, compare several versions of it, play snippets from each version, talk about the history. You'll learn a lot. You'll laugh a lot and Mm. (laughs) see some uh, interesting versions of what they like and don't like. They don't like strings. We know that.
0: Well, they don't like strings in jazz. They like strings. They've gotten into this with us. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I'm on board with that. I don't really like string arrangements in jazz very much. much, Yeah. It depends. They're they're a little more tasteful these days when they come in, but... Mm. They're just not in style at the moment, I think. And if they use them, they're always really light now. But in those old recordings, man, they had the whole, <laughs> Pretty the whole soupy, orchestra yeah. out there schmaltzing it up. Boy.
1: Anyway, there's a link to their podcast in the description. And if you stick around to the end of the episode, you can check out their audio promo and hear a little sample of what they're all about. Tonight, as we've been doing, we're going to play some audio samples of our own. And here's our fair use disclaimer. Music sample clips are for commentary and educational purposes. We recommend that listeners listen to the complete recordings, all of which are available on streaming services in the links provided. We also suggest that if you enjoy the music, you consider purchasing the CDs or high quality downloads to support
0: the artists. Okay, before we get into this, I should mention the official... Cognac brandy of the adult music podcast is Martel Cordon Bleu, or it would be. It's just that we can't afford it anymore. <laughs> it was always yeah. expensive. And then it doubled in price. oh what's yeah. going on here? I do have a nice bottle here of Martel VSOP, though, which is pretty good. Mm. So that's okay. It's tasty. Anyway, I like the Martel <laughs> Cognac. All right. Anyway, on to the music. Are we ready? Let's jump Anything in. else? Okay. We're going to start with uh, Baroque, which I like to do. I didn't do this last week, so I'm kind of happy to have Mm. some Baroque music. It's generally a cheerful way to start the podcast. Uh, Baroque music was very positive, emerging as it did during the Enlightenment when everybody thought all the world's problems were going to be solved. Well, (laughs) 200 years later, we saw that that wasn't going to happen. But um, the music itself is positive, and, you know, so that's what's great. So that, that positivity does last into our modern age, despite all the depressing things around us. You can kind of lift yourself up with this music. They really believe that all the, oh, the world's problems were just going to be solved in, like, 10 years when they were writing this music. Anyway, it's a flute album. We're going to do Arcangelo Corelli and uh, mm. Jean-Baptiste Canton de le jeune. Flute sonatas, and this is by Anna Besson on the Baroque flute. Now, the Baroque flute is not a recorder. We got to think of this, it's a wooden flute, but it's transverse. You're playing it and holding it to the side like a modern flute. Right. You're not blowing into it, like straight into your mouth like a recorder. And Miriam Rignol is on the viola, da gamba, and Jean Rondeau, a harpsichordist that we really like on this yeah. podcast, is accompanying in an accompanying role here in the harpsichord and the organ too. Right, yeah. <laughs> Which makes this album very interesting. It's on the Alpha label. Released January 26th. As I mentioned, Besson is playing a wooden transverse flute on this album. And there's a great quote in the booklet that I think classical listeners should take to heart. And really adult music podcast listeners, especially if you listen to classical music. Here's the quote. Oh, how happy the man and how high must be his self-esteem who is acquainted with the Opus 5 of Corelli. That's quoted from uh, Jean-Laurent Le Cerf de la Vieville's book, a comparison of Italian and French music from 1704. I think that's funny because he pretty much wrote this book that I think says, the Italians have much better music than we do. What are we doing here? (laughs) French music did go its own unique way too, though, which was great. It's a nice sentiment. Self-esteem for listening to this music. Great music increases our self-esteem. That sounds great. Our sense of well-being, and that's why you should be listening to this music that we're recommending, and really more besides. Let's keep that in mind. Music increases our self-esteem and uh, makes us happy. When listening to this album, which I hope you'll uh, download and listen to all the way through, it's really great. Yeah. I feel like instrumental music from the Baroque era has that unique quality to lift us up even today. And I kind of mentioned uh, one of the many reasons at the beginning, because Mm. of the uh, positivity of the era that it was written in. Anyway, tracks 1 through 4, we start with this uh, new composer, to me, he's a new old composer, uh, Jean-Baptiste Quentin de Lejeune. Now, we're going to refer to him as Quentin. He's French, and de Lejeune, I mean de means called and he was referred to as Lejeune. I guess his father was also called Jean-Baptiste okay. Quentin, but um he's the younger Jean-Baptiste Quentin if you're a researcher and you're wondering. Anyway, This is his Sonata Sexta du Troisième Livre, de Sonate à Violon Sol et Basse Continue. God, these names are so long (laughs) (laughs) for these works. All right, so Sonata Sexta from his third book of sonatas. Let's just keep it at that. It's a four-movement work. Canton's entire output is heavily inspired by Italian music, and one quality of Italian music is that it's very virtuosic. Okay. French music was often pretty. It likes to work with the timbre. and That's true to this day, except that they have a different approach now. Italian music always had virtuosity. They especially admired sprezzatura, which is a good word to remember. Sprezzatura means effortlessly tossing off these incredibly difficult... Passages, So you're playing your violin like Paganini and just looking like, uh, you know, I wish I was eating a sandwich now or something. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Instead of like looking like you're really working hard. That was the ideal of Italian music, you know. <laughs> I wish I was eating a bowl of pasta. I always wish I was eating a bowl of pasta. But <laughs> back to the music. So virtuosity. We're going to hear a bit of virtuosity in this. All of these works were written for the uh, violin. Right. And they're um, transcribed here for the flute. And I want you to think about that. The flute is not as quick an instrument to play as the violin, the violin you're using your fingers. The flute, if you're going to play these fast passages, this all has to be like lip, mouth, throat muscles, breathing, it's it's a lot harder to achieve. Anyway, let's start, first movement, adagio, so he's starting slow. Now remember, um, Vivaldi was the one who introduced the uh, fast, slow, fast concerto or form. Before him, it used to be slow, fast, slow, fast, and we're starting slow here. So we get a sense right away on this album of the sense of the fullness of the flute's tone in this very slowly played and highly exposed flute line. Rondeau plays his harpsichord accompaniment gently in the background with Rignol on the uh, viola da gamba playing long sustained single notes on her instrument. Besson has a nice sense of shaping the melody, holding back a bit to allow us to enjoy the tone and shape of the melody and really her tone as well. Okay, this ends with an open cadence that introduces the next movement, but let's uh, sample this and just get into the gorgeousness of this entire sound world. Here we go. First track, Jean-Baptiste Canton's sixth sonata from his third book of sonatas. There's no cadence in sight there. This is going really um, mm. on and on. I always feel like the flute's a really sensual instrument because it's the breath, you know, and it's there are right. no words, so you're just hearing that breath. It's, it feels really intimate to me, especially when you get a slow melody like that. Anyway, the next movement is a corrente, which is faster, so it's the fast movement. It has a pleasant, happy feel to it, and sounds also a bit on the slow side, which allows the timbres to register, and I bet it helps the flute's virtuosity to register, too, getting it on the slow side. I don't think the flute can really play as fast as the violin would on this. Rondeau is very subtle in the back on the harpsichord, uh, making sure Besson is the star of the show, and she is, with her lovely playing. Let's hear a bit of that. pretty. The third movement is a Largo. It's meditative from the flute and it's got a different melody, perhaps a more memorable one than the first movements. And we go to the fourth movement, Aria. The song gives a lot of character to this theme with her breathy tone and the quietness of the attack. It sounds like it's kind of tiptoeing around. And I like the low-key approach to this. I'm going to sample this one too. So we're getting a lot of this first work here. Let's hear this. of that opening theme pretty straightforward composition track five sonata 10 from the second book of sonatas for violin now this is a single movement of a longer piece these single movements um, from various quintan sonatas serve to separate them from uh, the corelli ones really Uh, we've taken down from the previous movement with this rather lugubrious one and we're hearing uh, rondo on the organ in the continuo in this case i wonder if we'll ever get a full organ recording from him here he's in Hmm. the continuo role I like the flute's deeper end on this track. Next, we have the man of the hour, really, Arcangelo Corelli, a sonata four from his fifth, it says cinquième oeuvre, so his fifth work. Ajuste à la flute traversière. So it means it's been arranged for the flute. It's a violin work. This is one of his opus fives. It starts with an adagio, which is played up high on the flute. I like the way there's a kind of uh, popped stop to the notes on the wooden flute caused by the breath. The the recorder does this really well, but um, she's getting this effect here too. It's like the instrument is like an organ whose note is being let go. The movement is slow and features a lot of flourishes of the flute added to the main melody. It's got a light quality and a satisfying cadence at the end. And then we get to the Allegro, which starts with the flute playing a repeated note melody. It's light and uplifting, and I want you to feel light and uplifted right now, so let's sample this. getting a lot of those repeated notes and you gotta remember this was originally for the violin so interesting sound there the eighth track vivace has a lovely inflection to it too only the flute is vivace here this movement is brief and a minute long but I wish it was longer because it's uh, pretty appealing track nine adagio movement four the organ plays continuo here and rondeau is changing between harpsichord and organ between movements of this work. Mm. It gives this movement a solemn feel, the organ. The flute has more sustained tones here. The movement comes across as mournful after the two more lively movements. There's a nice false cadence before the end, and the piece doesn't cadence but goes into the next movement, movement 5, track 10, Allegro. This starts as a more measured Allegro with an uplifting theme, and I'll sample that for you. the organ continuo now that is jean rondeau on the organ nice sound track 11 is a jean baptiste Quentin piece his second sonata from his second book of sonatas uh, for the violin it's an andante acting as an intro for the next quentin sonata it's a lighter andante and it's got an appealing melody ends with an open cadence and the programming brings it in line with the corelli sonatas tracks 12 through 14 quentin again sonata four of his uh, sonatas for violin or solo flute. So this is really can be played by either one. The first movement, track 12, is an allegro. The previous movement acts as an intro to this, so nice programming there. It has an appealing, leaping quality to it. Not as sunny as Corelli, though. The harpsichord and the viola da gamba both provide continuo. Yeah, I think that Italian sunshine just gets into the Italian composer's <laughs> body or something. They always write with it. Track 13 is the second uh, slow movement. It's got a heavy theme, and it's pretty brief. And the third movement, track 14, is an aria. The flute has a staccato theme here with a continuo, very audible, in the spaces. And I rather liked this, so let's sample this one. that basically repeats and then we go off onto other things tracks 15 through 19 corelli again sonata three from his um uh, opus five arranged for the transverse flute the three corelli opus five sonatas were originally for the violin as i mentioned as flute soloists started emerging they were transcribed but keys had to be changed in order to get the music to fit the flutes fingering and range hence the ajuste part of the title So when I say arrange, they actually change the key too. Track 15 is the first movement adagio, and Corelli seems to like to have the soloist, remember originally a violinist, in its higher range for the opening adagios, as again here. The cadence comes at a lower range of the instrument. It works exceptionally well for the flute, and let's hear the opening. I guess I should just come out of it right there, (laughs) because it's a very long pause. All right, it does go on. Track 16 is an Allegro, and this movement really puts the flute through its paces. The solo line is intricate, with Besson overcoming the obstacles with beautiful tone throughout. Jean Rondeau on the harpsichord sounds pretty busy in this track, with Rignol on gamba showing some athleticism as well. Yeah, I may as well sample this one too. Let's uh, hear how that plays out. To my ear, this is very impressive, because she's got those virtuosic lines, which she's playing a little slower than the violin, but Besson is doing all that figuration while maintaining that really beautiful full-round tone. It's really amazing. Beautiful playing. Really a pleasure to listen to. Track 17, the third movement, Adagio. The flute starts solo, with the harpsichord initially coming in in canon with the melody, but then repeating that line for the rest of the theme. The gamba has a counter-melody that outlines the chords. Track 18 is an allegro the athletic line in the flute with the continuo mostly outlining the harmony on staccato downbeat chords and it's a brief movement and then we go into track 19 the final movement allegro it has an appealing triplet skipping quality to it which continues throughout and leaves us in a sunny positive place let's get into that sunny positive place and hear the opening of this movement Yeah, really nice. Ah, could have gone for that last cadence. Didn't know it was coming. All right, track 20, Jean-Baptiste Quintan Sonata Decima, 10th Sonata from his third book of sonatas. This is the Largo movement of that work. It's a heavy, lugubrious theme accompanied by organ in the continuo for extra weight. The viola da gamba plays the theme, and there's no sign of a flute. And the track ends as an intermezzo between two Corelli sonatas. And it's a good idea to break up the sound and get a chance to hear Miriam Rignol up front on the viola de gamba. Let's give her a chance to uh, be heard here, in track 20. Here we go. <laughs> I can and have listened to entire albums of that viola <laughs> da gamba and uh, hmm. organ. It's really a great combination. Tracks 21 through 25 are the final Corelli composition on this. This is a Sonata 5 from his uh, Opus 5. And this is in the Sonata's original key. This is the only Corelli piece that we have on this album that's in the Sonata's original key. All right, so track 21 is an adagio and has a lighter tone than the previous track, with the harpsichord taking the weight off, really. The flute, of course, is back, and the first melody features sustained tones, while the second section has a lighter melody with light decorative additions. Track 22, the second movement, Vivace. I really love the fast movements in Italian works. They just really move. This has a light staccato, inquisitive theme at the beginning that drew me in. It continues lightly, allowing the continuo to fill in a lot of the space. Let's hear a bit of this. She doesn't really hit those cadences hard, just like our little staccato here, mm-hmm. really, gotta be really be listening to them. And that staccato approach really gets the breathy quality out of it. It's a quality that I really like in this flute. Track 23, Adagio, the harpsichord starts us off with a slow ticking rhythm of individual notes, and the flute at first accompanies and then slowly puts together a slow-moving melody. I like the whole coming into being quality of this movement ends with an open cadence and we move to the fourth movement track 24 vivace a theme that proceeds via arabesques in the flute and it's a clever approach track 25 the final movement is an allegro and it's got a triplet melody giving the movement a light skipping quality this is the last movement of corelli we'll hear on this recording so let's hear one last sample of his music <laughs> Ah, false cadence there I thought it was coming up I was (laughs) hesitating didn't remember okay track 26 through 29 is the final uh, piece on the album it's Quentin his fourth sonata from his third book of sonatas movement one un poco andante starts with an organ chord and this comes across as lighter than the other organ continuo movements and the flute plays a plaintive melody plaintive meaning kind of emotional let's hear this So these samples are usually around 30 seconds, and in Baroque music it's ideal because the theme from the beginning to cadence is usually around 30 seconds long, and it just always seems to work out perfectly. (laughs) It's almost like they measured them out or something. Okay, second uh, movement, Alemanda. This is a dance, like a dance suite sort of uh, title. It's a light melody, carefree on the flute, and proceeds with light figuration, the harpsichord, and gamba, throwing the rhythm into relief. You want to notice... (laughs) There's no organ on this track. We go right to the harpsichord again for the continuo. Let's listen. 30 seconds. Perfect. The 28th track, movement three, Sarabanda, which is a slow movement. The harpsichord sets the harmony as the flute comes in and plays the theme with a light plaintive feel. And the uh, 29th track and final one is an aria, movement four. The flute takes a light breathy tone on this final movement with the harpsichord playing along with the flute's rhythm and filling out the harmony. It's relatively brief and ends the album on a lightly cheerful note. So you notice that there's a lot of variety on this recording, just between the, uh, the three instruments and the approaches. and It's a gorgeous recording, full of sunshine and happiness for the most part, with these contrasting moments of sadness and things like that, uh, pleasing throughout with well-thought-out approaches to the many works programmed. All of the works managed to take on a sense of individuality, not a, always the case in an era where composition styles were less individual. Here it's all in the themes and how they're shaped by the musicians, and I thought Anna Besson's approach was creative. She has a lot of ideas, and we hear that in each contrasting movement. Tone varies slightly between heavy in the adagio movements and light in the quicker ones, and having Jean Rondeau switch between mostly harpsichord and organ at times was a nice touch, and one that kept the ear interested in the totality of what was being played. Miriam Rignon on viola da gamba ranged between active and passive continuo, and provided counter melodies at times. Her light vibratulous tone, lifting the heart or weighing it down at times too, when necessary. This album is a real winner. I heard this in the morning one day, and I just—I was just happy for the rest of the day. It Just really put me in a good place for, for me, particularly the Corelli works. But there was all good. It's all worthwhile, and it'll put you in a good place for the rest of the day too. I would say. But also listen in the evening as well. It'll probably give you good dreams. I found these all real
1: enjoyable. I like the lyrical nature. Of these violin transcriptions for flute, they seem mm-hmm. less fluttery in nature well, yeah. than what is normally written with. You have the flute in mind. Uh, you know, have these kind of butterfly-like turning phrases in flute music a lot. Yeah. And here I get more of this kind of linear movement, and that really makes the gorgeous tone, especially Besson's flute tone, uh, so warm shine here. Interestingly. From the notes on the recording, since the violin is a double-stopped instrument, right? You can play more than one string at a time. You can play right. a chord on it. Now, that's not going to be possible on
0: the flute. So it says
1: that what they did... <laughs> Unless
0: you're Roland Kirk, I guess. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you got
1: a couple of flutes or instruments yeah. in your mouth. But here, they would have to either choose between... Taking one note, usually the upper note, or they would reproduce the double stopping in linear order, having the note values so as not to maintain the tempo. So sometimes the, you know they would have to make decisions or change that. I found that kind of interesting to think about. Overall, mostly though, what I enjoyed is the tonal blends on the recording this uh, viola da gamba and the warm flute blend sometimes or the harpsichord and the organ. You're getting that continuo change up and then just the one piece with the viola da gamba was really nice as well. So it's kind of a warm tonal feast and yeah, really nice music.
0: I just want to say to the Alpha Records label, don't bother sending me a free copy of this. I've already ordered it. (laughs) we've never gotten a free classical album but we've gotten quite a few jazz ones. we got a lot of
1: jazz ones
0: yeah Yeah, come on classical labels step up your game over here (laughs) anyway (laughs) but don't worry about that i was being facetious when i said that okay so but i did order it i didn't order order. it yet so oh well you can send one (laughs) if you want and i'll hand it off to russ okay (laughs) i couldn't wait anyway the next album is another flute one, but this is kind of a little unusual, actually. Hmm. It's The Spore Collection, Volume 3. I want you to think about that title. Something
1: from a uh, biology
0: lab. Yeah, they did that on purpose. (laughs) You just know it, The Spore Collection. Yeah, I'm collecting spores. No, the guy's name is Spore. Well, I'll get to that in a minute. This is The Spore Collection, Volume 3. Okay, so there are two other ones that came out in years past. And this is by Florilegium, a group I've been following, I think, since the 1990s or at least the 2000s, I'm pretty sure. Hmm that I remember that from the 1990s. One of my favorite uh, violinists, Rachel Podger, used to be a member <laughs> of this group. Okay. Now she's off on her own, and she still plays with them occasionally, just as a soloist now. And now it's um, we have um, Ashley Solomon as the uh, soloist on this, and he's often the soloist on their albums. And this is on the uh, Channel Classics album. It always has been for them. They've been on this label forever, really. And released uh, January 19th. The booklet that comes with this CD, you can, we can now download them, so we can see a lot of these. The funny thing is, is <laughs> you can get most of the booklets from uh, online sites now, mm-hmm. except for the ones <laughs> released by major you know, record labels, right. like Sony or Deca. They don't put them up for some reason. I don't know why. The minor labels in classical music, or, no, I don't say minor, but the smaller labels in classical music really know how to do it. Anyway the booklet is a real instrument nerds piece of documentation not only listing all of the flutes used which after all is what this album is going to be about i'll explain that in a minute but the make of all the other instruments are listed as well after the notes we get more detailed descriptions of the flutes but there are no photos of the flutes except for the one on the cover and uh there are two more (laughs) like inside the book what are they doing you got to give us a photo of the flutes here Right. I just want to do a comparison. Um, There was an album last year by Alexander Melnikov that we didn't cover, unfortunately, called um, Fantasy. It was seven composers, seven keyboards. Melnikov used seven different keyboard instruments, one for each different composer, starting with Bach and going up to Alfred Schnittke in the 20th century, the Steinway. And we had photos of all of those keyboard instruments in the book, and it was fascinating. It's a fascinating listen. Mm. This album is fascinating, too, but I really would have liked to have seen pictures of these flutes. There are two black and white photos in the booklet of Solomon with Florilegia members, each time with a different flute in hand. But again, we don't know which ones they are. I'll hazard a guess that the light looking one at the end of the booklet is one of the ivory ones. And maybe we're seeing the Grenzer Ebony and Ivory flute in the photo just before the track listing in the booklet, if you download it. Anyway, what matters is the sound, so let's hear this recording. I'll sample something from each work so that we can get a sense of each flute in our ears. Oh, I didn't write anything about uh, Henry Spohr. He's, he's a uh, flute collector, and he apparently has a collection of hundreds of period flutes. I should have kind of documented this. That's what this collection is all about. These are his flutes that Escher Solomon is playing. Okay, so the first work is Mozart, Flute Quartet in D Major. K-285. I also want to mention, this album, it's not Baroque, and it's not really classical either, so it's mostly, I guess, what we'd call gallant-style music, which was sort right. of the period in between the Baroque and the classical era, which, it wasn't terribly deep. It was surface-level melodic and appealing. And the Mozart work, he's really the classical era, but this really is a lighter work by him. This was commissioned by a wealthy Dutch merchant and amateur flautist, uh, Ferdinand de Jean. And the flute part overshadows the strings throughout, so it's a good showcase for the flute Ashley Solomon is playing. It is a flute by A. Grenzer. It's ebony and ivory, made in Dresden in 1770. First movement, allegro. The flute has that pop to the stopped tone that we get from a recorder, and I really like that sound. And the sound is light, and on the thinner side, I don't want to say it's a thin sound, it's full-bodied, but it's the sound of the flute. It's very pleasant and gentle on the ear, so let's hear a bit of that. Okay, now you might notice that Florilegium really doesn't go for a sharply etched rhythmic approach, and they don't do that anywhere on the album. They're really more about keeping the continuity going. It's very pleasant. I really like what they do, so keep that in mind. If you're looking for, like, really dancey rhythms, you might want to go elsewhere, but I recommend you listen to this anyway. Salomon articulates extremely well with it each individual note clearly registering. I notice we don't get the uh, through legato to the opening that we usually hear in a modern flute, and I'm wondering if that's by necessity or just because Solomon decided to play it that way. The middle section makes a sudden swerve into the minor key, and we're back to the major for the repeat of the opening material. I should mention that the strings are discreet, playing without vibrato, and rather quietly. Movement two, the Adagio. This is track two. The strings set a lovely atmosphere with their gentle pizzicati as the flute plays its melody. I like the whole sound of this relatively brief movement. And let's hear their sound here. that cadence at the end there. How do you like that? Third movement of the Mozart Flute Quartet in D major is a rondo, and it's played rather smoothly without the more dancing rhythms we usually get. The rhythm burbles along pleasantly, like rushing water in the strings, and the melody becomes song-like in this interpretation. It's catchy, like all of Mozart's rondos, and I'll make you sample this one for yourself. Track four, John Frederick Lamp, Pretty Warblers, from the opera, I guess it is, Dione. This flute is by C. Gedney, it's boxwood and ivory, from Venice in 1730. Now, we hear the uh, soprano soloist Rowan Pierce in this track. Lamp, the composer, was born in Saxony, which is in Germany, where Leipzig is. And he came to England in 1724. He played the bassoon in the opera houses. And this movement is a graceful Siciliana from his uh, work, a uh, dione. This flute has a deeper sound than the first. We hear it right away, playing a melody in its middle range. Pierce herself has a light voice with a bit of depth to the tone, matching the flute in a way. Let's uh, hear just the opening of this. Okay, I didn't even get to the vocal, but we will hear Rowan Pierce's voice later. I've actually singled her out on a different track. Anyway, she sings on this one. Tracks 5 through 8, Antonio Vivaldi, everybody's favorite, sonata in E minor. The flute is by G. Castell. It's boxwood and ivory. Again, Venice, 1730. It's possible that due to the more lightweight virtuosity of this composition, it was composed by Johann Martin Blachwitz and not Vivaldi. <laughs> Blochwitz used to fashionably adopt Vivaldi's name to popularize his compositions. <laughs> Why not, right? Track five, movement one, Andante. So we have a new flute. It sounds similar to the previous movement's Boxwood Ivory Flute, which is also made in Venice. And this movement is on the slow side. The flute chirps out the melody in a rather cautious way like the melody is discovering its surroundings. Then we get to the Siciliano, which of course is gonna be the movement that I sample because I just love this rhythm. The tempo here is about the same as the opening movement. Let's sample this because it's got a Siciliano rhythm to it. those um repeated notes you know towards when the cadence is extended it's a really nice effect track seven movement three allegro this movement is pretty virtuosic with lots of chirps and leaps from the solo flute the rhythm is sharply outlined and i love the breathy attack on the flute this movement is pretty brief as is often the case with vivaldi middle movements Although this is the third movement. Anyway, the fourth movement is an arioso. And the rhythm has a bit of purpose in this movement, striding forward confidently as it does. The flute has a dipping phrase that gets a lot of play in the solo line. Very appealing. Tracks 9 and 10, Walter Claggett, two Scots airs. The flute is by R. Potter. It's Boxwood and Ivory again from London, 1770. So it's 40 years later than the flute we just heard. Claggett was an Irish cellist and composer and he's setting here um two scots airs the first one i forgive me for not knowing the uh, scott scottish pronunciations here logie Obuchen, a very familiar sounding melody played in the flute's lower range solomon gets a breathy sound here and this is accompanied by a theorbo but sounds a lot like a light guitar in this case the theme has something similar to the city sidewalks part of the christmas song silver bells you <laughs> know you know it's just kind of in passing though track 10 the last of paddy's mill we get to hear a bit more of the range of the potter flute on this track as solomon flutters in the high end and that's why i chose this track to sample for this flute let's listen theme is of course going to repeat because it is after all a folk song the breath comes through strongly on this instrument accompaniment is theorbo and a cello after the theme we get a variation after which the piece ends tracks 11 through 13 a piece that rather surprised me wilhelm friedemann bach one of bach's sons his sonata in e minor ibw 58 the flute is by j.a. krone it's ivory and uh, leipzig 1780 so another later instrument This is a work that's highly virtuosic and far ahead of its time. Both the rhythmic and harmonic content foreshadowed the style to come in the classical era, which Haydn and Mozart would be the peak of. So this is really the most complex, if you can call it that, it's really not very complex, work on this album, really this album's centerpiece, I would say. Track 11 is an allegro, ma non tanto. It has a brighter, lighter sound on the flute as it starts forte, Accompaniment here is harpsichord only. There are some nice flutters in the flute line, but this one has gotten away from the popped endings of the instruments closer to the recorder, as we heard in the first track of the album. Uh, The movement itself is on the heavy side. It sounds like there's a lot on Wilhelm Friedemann's mind (laughs) in this movement. At 2 minutes and fifty seconds, the new section starts with the flute in its high end, and there's some light virtuosic figuration as the section goes on. Track 12, movement two is the slow movement. It's a Siciliano. You guessed it. We're going to sample this one. Let's hear it. Towards a cadence in there somewhere but he's really stretching it out (laughs) and that's why it's so interesting because you're just wondering where the rest is coming it's a slower Siciliano with an expressive flute line playing in its low end at the beginning it leaps into the higher end for the rest of the melody and we hear the instruments full range in this movement the melody is poignant the piece is a nice find it's on the downcast side it has a lot of emotional content to it track 13 the third movement vivace lightens the mood set by the previous two movements but it's not without its memory of them. Its light, hesitating melody has doubts to it. Solomon's playing is understated, possibly due to the instruments. He lets the music speak for itself for the most part and provides virtuosity when necessary. There's an impressive flute line right in the last minute as the piece is winding up. Yes, Ashley Solomon is one of these musicians that serves the music, and I really love that about him. And he's got a great sound, too. Track 14, Thomas Chilcott, Orpheus with his lute. This one also is uh, a vocal piece. Rowan Pierce is singing on this one again. She's the soprano soloist. And the flute is by T. Cahusac. It's Ivory from London, 1760. Chilcott was born in Bath in England and seems to have stayed there for his entire life. The text for this song is from Shakespeare's uh, play Henry VIII. So let me just sample the opening of this. I'm going to do two samples because I want to make sure I get the voice in this time. Let's hear the opening with the flute. Okay, I just cut out the voice, but I'm going to get her <laughs> later on. It has pizzicato strings, as you heard, a light theorbo accompany the flute theme. After the intro, we hear Rowan Pierce again. Uh, she has a pleasant voice and an excellent tremolo, or shake, as Handel would have called it. It comes into play often in this piece. It's a nice composition, with the flute commenting on the vocal line. I like the way the accompaniment acquires a stronger bubbling feeling as the piece goes on. This is the last time, it's only the second time, but the last time we'll hear Rowan Pierce sing on this album. So I want to give her voice some time in the sampling spotlight. So I'm going to just go right ahead to where she's singing. even gets a lot of space in there, too. I guess I could have just only gone for that one. Tracks 15 through 18, Pietro Locatelli. Now, last year, we heard a fantastic Locatelli recital by Isabel Faust yeah. that I'm still thinking about. Really, uh, It was really special. That was on Harmonia Mundi. Anyway, this is one piece by Locatelli. Sonata, opus 2, number 8 in F major. The flute is by F. Irens. It's ivory and was made in Utrecht in Holland with well, the Netherlands. In 1740. Uh, Locatelli was born in Bergamo up north. The first movement, Largo, breathy light tone on the flute, and we really get a sense of its quality from these long-held notes in the opening. The theme takes on some decoration as it plays out. There's a nice little cadenza before the final cadence. Track 16 is the second movement, Vivace. This flute here shows a bit more of a relationship to the recorder in its tone, though it's fuller sounding. This work is pretty athletic, and a bit slower than I associate with the vivace marking, though the lively quality does come across. Track 17, uh, movement 3, cantabile, singable, so this is full of pleasant, comfortable melodies, and this movement features another one of them. The other two movements had them too. It's slow and singable, as the instruction suggests. I like the theme, so I wanted to sample this one for this particular flute. Let's hear this. a teardrop in there too even though it's kind of a pretty melody that's a fairly long movement at over five minutes the middle section moves into a darker minor key and expresses some more shadowy hidden thoughts by two minutes and 55 seconds we're out of the woods but a little chastened as the theme seems more somber as it repeats Track 18, Allegro. This brief movement restores us to the bright spirits with its lively theme. Florilegium throughout the album has downplayed these more spirited movements, but the high spirits nevertheless come through, perhaps a testament to the expertise of this decades-old ensemble. The movement winds up being both lively and calming at the same time, a real feat. Tracks 19 through 20 feature more Scots airs, this time by Francesco Barsanti. The flute was made by T. Cahusac, it's Boxwood and Ivory, London, 1780. Barsanti, the composer, was a flautist, oboist, viola, and recorder player, as well as a composer. He was born in Lucca in Italy, and he abandoned a career in law to take up music. (laughs) Good for him. Yeah. Yeah. We need more musicians, less lawyers. He moved to London and played in the opera orchestra where Handel's operas were being staged. He then moved to Edinburgh and got married, and he wrote the Scots airs there and dedicated them to the Lady Erskine, who supported him while he was there. Track 19, Lord Aboyne's Welcome, or Cumbernauld House. It's brief at 1 minute and 33 seconds. The flute sounds resonant in its low end and is accompanied suitably only by a cello, bringing out the haunting nature of the melody. Track 20, Loshaber, or Lokaber. This is a pretty melody, taken with the breathy tone Solomon gets from the Kahusak instrument. It's also only accompanied by the cello, and this is the one I'm going to sample. So, let's hear this. These themes are really short. <laughs> Folk <laughs> themes don't go all the way to 30 seconds. The final work on the album, Johann Christoph Pepusch, sonata number 16 in B minor. And I think this is the first time this has ever been recorded. The flute is by J. Schuchart. It's Ivory from London, 1740. Track 21 is an adagio. It's brief at a minute and 46 seconds with the flute sounding brightly. With a slightly thinner sound than the instrument on the previous track. The movement is taken slowly, with the melody drawing full attention. Track 22 is the second movement, Allegro. Rapid figuration to open the track. It comes across as impressive, and the tone really fits this speed. The flute sounds more agile than others we've heard on this recording. This is a brief movement at under two minutes, and it's over too soon, but let's sample the flute on this track. This is track 22. <laughs> chatty, that theme. Movement 3, track 23, adagio. and adagio similar to the opening, but a bit longer at around 2 minutes and 30 seconds. It has the same pacing and a similarly melting melody. Track 24, the final track and the final movement, allegro, is a pleasantly striding rhythm that accompanies the dotted, cheerful melody on the flute. So this is an interesting program featuring various types of flutes from the Baroque or classical period, The program is a bit odd, flirting mostly with the gallant style in vogue between the Baroque and classical eras. These works are all about their melodies and about entertaining the listeners. It's a well-chosen program to feature the various flutes because it's the flute that holds our ears. As a result of having a different flute feature in each multi-movement work, we're constantly drawn into the new sound of the instrument and get an idea of what it would be like to hear multiple flute concerts from back in the era. Of course, everybody would be using a different flute. All of the music is appealing, and Ashley Solomon's expertise with these flutes is impressive. He gets an impressive tone out of all of them, and the rest of Floralegium support him admirably. It's a pleasant album that leaves one in high spirits. And can I just add that it would have been a better idea to get Ashley Solomon to play James Madison's crystal flute than having Lizzo play it. I wouldn't <laughs> mi- I wouldn't mind getting an idea of what that flute sounds like in a full work recorded by Ashley Solomon.
1: Well, there are a lot of unique flute tones that are all really enjoyable here. The flute playing itself is very fine, the technique is wonderful, and I could get the appeal of each instrument. The music is rhythmic, but as you said, it doesn't have that kind of edge to it. So overall, it's a relaxing feel, even in the more kind of sprightly numbers, I thought. And I really like the tonal blends with the other instruments. Interestingly, reading the notes, all of these flutes have different original tuned pitches, you know, because at different times and places they were using different tunings. So each work is tuned to match that flute slightly differently, which I found kind of interesting, something we don't think about too much with uh, modern instruments today.
0: You know, as you're you're talking, I'm kind of looking through the notes quickly to get uh, Mr. Spores, the collector's first name, and it's not in here. Oh, really? I think I I I read it on the (laughs) internet somewhere. So again, Channel Classics, you got to sort of put a page in about where these flutes come from. Why is the album called The Spore Collection? It might say it's somewhere, but I can't find it here. The next album is by an artist that I'm sort of always drawn to. Patricia Kopachinskaya is uh, the main well, she's not the main player, but uh, I think she's the instigator of this album. The violinist, Moldovan violinist, Patricia Kopachinskaya. Whenever I see a new album with her on it, it reminds me of being at the amusement park and heading towards the roller coaster. <laughs> you just know <laughs> you're going to be excited, it's going to be scary, and you're just going to fasten that seatbelt and maybe you're going to you know, go upside down or really fast or something. Anyway, this album is called Take... 3 Patricia Kopachinskaya on the violin, Reto Bieri, a Swiss uh, clarinetist, and Polina Leschenko, Russian pianist. And uh, we'll have some other players on it as well later. This is on the Alpha label and it was released on uh, January 26th. Okay, Patricia Kopachinskaya released an album called Take 2 in 2015, not to be confused with this one, and it featured duos by contemporary and baroque composers. Actually, it featured duos of music from a thousand years ago all the way up to contemporary times <laughs> it was quite a wide-ranging program on that album kopachinskaya was paired with various artists um, one of them was reto bieri who we're hearing on the clarinet on this album okay patricia Kopachinska in the booklet note talks about rhythm and recalls her childhood in moldova a place now lost to her she doesn't say why but i guess there's information on that somewhere She makes the intriguing comment that these fragments of life and the elusiveness of the past can be found in her perception only in musical form, in heart-wrenching Bartok pizzicatos, in her words, and fragile harmonics on the edge of silence where the sounds of the world ceases and there remains only the lost echo of ourselves, in the silence, in the unsaid, only sensed. That's where her homeland is, she says. And I was thinking, yeah, maybe it's all of our homelands. I often wonder if I listen to so much music because I'm just unhappy with the way physical existence (laughs) plays out. Each of the three main musicians on this album gets a say in the booklet notes. Uh, Leschenko's is the quirkiest. She says, music performance today can best be explained in terms of tomatoes. Uh, You can download the (laughs) booklet and read her note by yourself to find out why. It's kind of complicated, so I didn't want to get into the story here. Anyway... This work is sort of, it, it features three multi-movement works that are sort of interspersed with other shorter works. And most of those are from Francis Poulenc's L'invitation au Château, or Invitation to the Castle. It's a multi-movement work. It's got like lots of movements. And uh, they're all very brief pieces, like a minute or two minutes long. And we start with one of those, um, the uh, fourth movement of L'invitation au Château, Mouvement de Valse Hésitation, Movements from Livetassin Chateau were chosen for this album, according to the booklet, because the album's theme of three, and of course a waltz is in three four time. In the booklet, this waltz is called a seemingly modest, unassuming little piece, though actually massively profound, almost inexplicably so. It's very brief, at a minute and 45 seconds. The violin leads with the waltz theme, and Kobachinskaya gets a sighing sound, really old school so we're really setting a unique tone for this album right away. The clarinet comes in its lower end and sounds great. There's fantastic tone all around. The middle section livens up the waltz rhythm and when the A section comes back Kopachinskia is in her high end and the piano is playing loud. The piece ends softly. It's charming and there's a lot of interpretation going on here. This is a really old school sounding piece so I gotta get our ears accustomed to this and just sample this opening track. Okay, we're getting actually towards the middle of the piece already. <laughs> um, yeah, those portamentos, which are kind of coming back in style in violin playing, the portamento is like kind of like the little swoop that you make to attach the notes of the theme on the violin. That was really the norm of playing back when this piece was written, and Kobachinskaya really is picking up on that. I guess once she wants to put the era across too. Okay, tracks two through five. <laughs> you ready for the roller coaster ride, Paul <laughs> Schoenfield? he's American, trio for clarinet, violin, and piano. Schoenfield writes of this work that it realizes a longstanding desire to create entertaining music that could be played at Hasidic gatherings as well as in the concert hall. Each movement is based partly on an East European Hasidic melody. Well, I had to tell you, this is a pretty wild sounding work. There's a <laughs> lot of a klezmer music used in it. The first movement, track two, is Freilach, which is a popular dance from the world of Klezmer. And yeah, fasten your seatbelts for this. Um, I'm entirely energetic with some heavily spiced chords at the beginning. Let's just hear them. Prepare yourself mentally for this. Here we go. (laughs) Now, those really harsh-sounding chords are really landed on hard and stretched out, and I'm wondering if that's part of the interpretation. I wonder if they're actually written that way. I think they really wanted to put that in our ears. The rhythm is frenetic and wild, as you heard, with the material sprinting up scales and staccato. There are quite a few mood and tone changes in the work, and really throughout this whole album. These uh works kind of change their approach, sort of like they're not sort of moving into a new key area, they just go right into it as though you're watching a movie where a new scene has been spliced in. And that effect is all over this album. It's pretty normal, I guess, for the 20th century because cinema was the big art form that was um, happening and influenced a lot of composers. Kobachinska is especially resourceful in drawing different sounds out of her instrument. At 2 minutes and 15 seconds, we get a sad, weepy section briefly, then we're back to more frenetic material. The movement ebbs and flows in this way, ending with a surprise accelerando, very klezmer-like. Track 3, the second movement, March, has a klezmer flavor to it. It starts slowly, like a funeral march, but then other piano effects come in, breaking up the mood and lending an air of unpredictability. Once the violin and clarinet are in, the klezmer elements in the phrasing and rhythm are obvious. Uh, This sounds like a dark, highly ironic movement, klezmer usually being joyous music. So think about the way Mahler would use a lot of these themes to uh, communicate, like the opposite emotion of what you're hearing, really. I like the way the music quietly creeps forward with the same slow klezmer feel at 2 minutes and 30 seconds. The clarinet gets an intriguing staccato line over pizzicato violin at 3 minutes and 30 seconds but this quickly changes too in this quicksilver movement. Overall, it comes across as disturbing, but beneath the heaviness is a sense of fun at all the quick changes of approach. It's got a cute ending on unison violin and clarinet too. The third movement, track 4, Nigun, It's is a slow vocal movement of introspection or prayer. Now vocal meaning song-like, we're not going to hear any voice here. Clarinet starts with low, reedy, full tone on his quiet, lamenting line, Violin comes in with a quiet plaintive line, plaintive is sad and emotional, I actually said emotional before. There's a build-up as the violin repeats the same chord at a minute and 25 seconds, and the piano comes in. The clarinet starts playing a new theme in the higher end. Beats become really heavy by the second minute, the piano really accenting the bass as it did in the first two movements, and it ends quietly. Track 5, movement 4, the last movement, Kozatska. This was originally a Ukrainian dance of the Cossacks, but over the years it became part of the Jewish Hasidic tradition as well. Piano sets up an aggressive rhythm at mezzo forte that quickly crescendos as the virtuosic wild violin and clarinet lines come in. It's very impressive playing, and there's a lighter step to this movement than to the first three. The quick virtuosity and complex rhythmic detail all register well, a credit to all players in the ensemble. At one point, the music quietens and there are weeping figures in the violin and clarinet you want to hear at 2 minutes and 30 seconds and after for that. And then the violin plays a rapid repeating note and then the music heats up again. The movement in work ends with an exciting sprint to the last, inconclusive chord. Track 6, Poulenc again, Invitation au château. This is the 8th movement of that work, Tempo di Boston. The Boston is a slow, Americanized version of the waltz. Violin plays with a light tone in this, so lightly bowed it risks not sounding, but by now we know we're in expert hands here with uh, Kopachinskaya. The rhythm has a bit of a creep to it, which I rather like. The clarinet comes in in its lower end and really comments on the main theme or provides counterpoint to it. There are several changes of rhythmic character, though the tempo and rhythm itself remains the same throughout. The violin ends the work on barely sounded tones, and it's barely audible. Track seven, Poulenc again, this is a bagatelle in D minor for violin and piano. This has a pounding bass in the piano and a pretty wild violin as well. Once the theme starts, it gets a bit more playful with playing by Kopachinskaya that's alive to all the humor and nuance of tone in the piece. You wouldn't really think this is a Poulenc work. It has quick unexpected changes in it. Let's hear a sample of this, prepare to be surprised. is something with her various violin sounds. and She can go from one to the mm. other very quickly. It's really amazing. Track eight, Francis Poulenc, L'Invitation au Chateau, Movement 16, Follement Vite et Gay, crazily, lively, and happy. It's brief at less than 30 seconds, in speed, and even has the musician's voices exclaiming. It's over before you know it. Tracks nine through 11, Francis Poulenc, Clarinet Sonata. So, Patricia Kopaczynska, the violinist, sits this one out. Track 9, the first movement, Allegro Tristamente, starts rather manically as well, but we're in for some development here. There's a brief introduction, and then a more melodic theme is heard at the 22nd mark. The clarinet is put through a lot of its tonal range, and therefore its different timbral colors as well. Part of the movement come across as frantic, and others as gently romantic. There's a long section in the middle where the clarinet plays gently and gets a chance to show off its tone. So let's uh, sample kind of in the middle of this work. I'm going to go to the 3 minute 45 second mark. Yes, I want to point out, uh, this album is uh, lyrical as well as um, rhythmic, barbaric, and crazy. So you get a little bit of everything, really. I was kind of giving the wilder impression. I think it's mostly wild, though. I think that's why I chose so many wild samples. The middle movement is a romanza, which has a long solo clarinet sound to start this out. This is track 10, by the way. The piano comes in subtly, laying down the harmony. This piece has a touching and very 20th century French popular song melody. It almost sounds like something you'd hear on an accordion. At a minute and 30 seconds, the piano plays the clarinet's theme solo with the clarinet trading lines. It's a memorable movement, gently played, really gorgeous sound at the end in the last 45 seconds. The third movement, track 11, Allegro con Fuoco. This doesn't come across as aggressive as much as hyperactive and caffeinated. It's a rather jumpy movement. And has a silent film chase quality to it, which is kind of suitable, I guess, for the age it comes from. Let's uh, sample the beginning. Again, in phrasing too, both musicians really alive to um, just the nuances in the score and really bringing out like the echo effects and then the change between instruments playing the same lines. Really fantastic. There are quick changes to a slower, prettier theme that disappear as quickly as they appear. This movement comes across like a rondo as that frantic opening theme keeps reappearing when you don't expect it. It's not harmonically led to as much as spliced in again like a movie. Track 12, Poulenc, L'Invitacion au Chateau, this is movement 13, Tempo di Tarantella. Kopachinskaya is back here, and this is pretty fast and is also over before you know it. It's just like a taste of a Tarantella. Track 13, Bela Bartok, Burlesque, for violin and piano, so the clarinet sits this one out. It's brief, though. The violin has a squeaky sawing quality at the beginning with lines ending in upward glissandos in the violin. Kobachinskaya knows how to get comic expression out of these oddities. She's really fantastic, alive to the expression in these scores that aren't necessarily written there. She'd be a great person to work with if you were kind of putting a musical performance together. She seems to have loads of ideas, and a lot of them are really quirky. Bartok's works are often folk-based, and this one has the rough-hewn quality of an East European folk dance, I guess. There's an impressively expressive pizzicato section towards the end, interesting scraping of the bow across the strings at the very end. Track 14, we're back to Poulenc, L'invitation au Château. Track 12, Trevite Vite Tre Canaille, another hyperactive and very brief piece. By the way, the, way, the word canaille in um, French means a, a scoundrel or kind of like a bad person. I guess the instruction would mean like underhanded, like you're playing in an underhanded way. It's a high-speed work. Tracks 15 through 17, Béla Bartók, Contrasts for violin, Clarinet, and Piano. This piece was completed on uh, September 24th, 1938. That's my birthday, but I wasn't born then. So it was before <laughs> my birthday. It was a time, the booklet tells us, when Hitler was threatening to occupy the Sudetenland, coming close to igniting a European conflagration. The work had been commissioned by Benny Goodman, famous jazz clarinetist, and as a result, Bartok exposed himself to jazz when composing this work, though it could hardly be considered jazzy or jazz-inspired. It sounds very Hungarian folk (laughs) music-inspired. But he did play this with Benny Goodman. I forget who the uh, violinist was. This is a work that doesn't get recorded enough. It's one of Bartók's great works, but I guess it's because of the uh, getting a clarinet thing with a violinist and piano doesn't come up that often for albums and things like that. Anyway, track 15, the first of the three movements is a verbunkos, which is a Hungarian dance in two sections. Bartók really relied on these a lot. It starts as a sort of light march with the clarinet playing the theme and the violin pizzicato accompaniment. I really love this work in general, so I'm going to just sample this right here. So just every sound in that is just fascinating <laughs> there are all these little things happening that line breaks up as the violin plays a bowed double-stopped accompaniment as the clarinet continues with the theme as with so much of the music on this album the music has quick changes of rhythm orchestration harmony everything really it's very unpredictable there are a lot of musical surprises After the three-minute mark, there's a creeping rhythmic section where the violin and clarinet extend each other's lines and end some of them with heavy accents. The clarinet gets a solo cadenza at the ends of the movement. We had to give Benny Goodman something, right? Right. Anyway, track 16, movement 2, Piheño. I don't know how to say that, but that's my approximation. The title means relaxing. But there's a sense of something being slowly brought to a boil the movement has a simmering quality to it i thought it starts quietly with odd sul ponticello sounds i think that's when you play the bow on the bridge of the violin and it makes a thinner sound the clarinet plays in a quiet tone in unison and the phrases end in the piano rumbling track 17 the final movement sebes the violinist retunes two strings playing scordatura for this movement and Kopachinskaya starts this with double-stopped, scraping lines like discordant cats. The piano makes a pretty interesting sound with this trilling, lightly-played line. It soon comes in with chords, which the violin and clarinet trill over and trade lines over. By a minute and 40 seconds, the music explodes into a wild rhythm, which it then comes out of. Let me uh, sample that part. This is about a minute and 40 seconds into the third movement. <laughs> that's, not, that's not the end of the movement, it keeps going. At two minutes and 30 seconds, the clarinet gets a folk-inflected melody in an East European mode. Pentatonic sounding, I'd say. Pounding, repeating piano chords give way to a new section, slow and rather airy. It gets adventurous and knotty at the end and has an exciting ending. A piece that really needs to be heard more often. Track 18, Francis Poulenc, au Chateau, Tango. This is movement 11 of that work, this is track 18 straightforward tango rhythm and melody played first by the clarinet then violin. Kopachinskaya always characterizes with her tone and that's what makes her interesting to me. Listen to the difference in approach between the clarinet and violin in this. Let me just sample the opening. Funny, has a little delay to the attack when she plays this. I then gets a pizzicato go at the theme, and this is a pretty intriguing track for its sonorities. The track ends quietly. Finally, track 19 Serban Nishifor, I hope I said his name correctly. He's a contemporary composer. Klezmer Dance. Now we have two extra musicians on this track Ilya Gringaltz on the violin and Ruslan Lutsik on the double bass. Nicifor is a Romanian composer, and this starts with uh, talking, then some pounding piano, followed by what sounds like a, a music stand falling over, and more talking. It's an odd track with coughing included during the playing. The double bass thickens the theme, and once the klezmer theme gets going, it's pretty straightforward and appealing. At a minute and 17 seconds, the clarinet comes in, and for the first time on the recording gives us a strained sound like strangling the goose. We talked about this in (laughs) jazz last week. It gets wild as the tempo speeds up. I'm really enjoying hearing the clarinet get histrionic here. He's been so beautifully toned throughout the recording, and here he's sort of stepping out and letting his hair down a bit. By the end, we're hearing screaming and wild percussion sounds, like someone hitting the music stand hard, probably Kopachinskaya, It's a wild ending. I want to play the last 30 seconds just so that you know not to play this before bedtime because you're not going to fall asleep if this album is playing. Let's hear the ending. That, my friends, is a classical music recording. <laughs> we really need adventurous and highly talented musicians like Patricia Kopachinskaya to bring us music that's rarely played like most of the works on this album. I think she's a treasure. I much preferred the Pulong Sonata and Bartok contrast to the Schoenfield work with its klezmer-inspired wildness, but it's an exciting piece nonetheless. It's something we've come to expect from a Kopachinskaya program. Contrast isn't recorded often enough, and this may be its best recording all around, and, you know, except for the uh, the one with Benny Goodman on it. It certainly is played with enough character to stay in the ear. The program is well-planned, with the brief Poulenc pieces flying by with surprising differences of character. As is so often the case with Patricia Kopachinskaya Records, this doesn't come across as an ordinary classical music recording. It's full of life and often wild. Now, that's not to say other recordings aren't full of life, but there's something really special about her approach. She really is a unique artist. It's often wild, and the recording invites you to be wild as well.
1: It's surely an interesting program. That's what most of my comments were about. (laughs) The opening Polonk is lilting, kind Mm -hmm. of gets you relaxed a little bit, but then the field introduces a lot of playfulness that really defines the rest of what happens. The other Polonk pieces have a lot of variety with great clarinet lines. I really enjoyed the clarinet playing. The Bartok has lots of contrasting rhythms and all of these surprising techniques that make you wonder yeah. what's going on there. You want to actually right. see what's being played. And then when you get to the end, I really like how they wrap it up. You have that very tame tango of Polonk, right. and you know it's played well with a little hesitation. And then they save that crazy klezmer of the <laughs> Ford to knock you out at the ending. I really appreciated the enthusiasm here, and uh, the technique is really impressive, but it's all going on in a kind of a sense of having fun and exploring different
0: changes and really
1: exciting things that go along.
0: Yeah, so I thought it was a really fun recording. The wildness quality that they get is like children out of control kind of wildness, <laughs> you know? And it's something you just never hear in classical music because everybody's like all buttoned up in there. Right. I mean, they just let go here. It's really fantastic. It'd be great if a lot of classical music sounded like this. But then again, I do like the buttoned up style as well. So different records for different moods. Right. Yeah.
1: All right. Well, over on the jazz side, we're going to keep the woodwind theme going. And we're actually going to start with a trio here too, although of quite a different nature. And that's with our first recording. It's called Traveler's Ways on Challenge Records. This came out February 2nd. The trio is Enrico Pieranunzi on piano, Jasper really like Somsen on bass, and Gabriele Mirabasi on the clarinet. Well, Pieranunzi's no stranger <laughs> to our podcast. We've heard him in our first two episodes ever, actually. One oh, that's two. right. Yeah. Yep.
0: We, there were two of them.
1: Yeah. Right. Also, episode 63, Piano Paisans, yeah. and episode 120, Saxifying Memories. He was uh, born in Rome, 1949. He's one of the biggest names on the European and really international jazz scene. He's recorded more than 70 recordings under his own name, ranging from solo piano to trio, duos and quintets. He's played either live or in the studio with such jazz greats as Chet Baker, Lee Connitz, Paul Motion, Charlie Hayden, Chris Potter, Mark Johnson, and many more. Jesper Somsen on bass is Dutch. He's a composer and producer as well. He's born in 1973. He does both classical and jazz, and also plays pop music, world music, film music, and theater productions. He's played with big names like Peter Erskine, Joey Calderazzo, Jeff Bayard, and many others, Paolo Fresu in Italy. As I said, he's also a producer. He's played on more than 45 albums, video, and film music scores as well. And he teaches at the Art EZ University of the Arts in Arnhem, Netherlands. And on clarinet, we've got Gabriele Mirabasi, born 1967. He graduated in 1986 from the Morlachi Conservatory in Perugia. In his career, he's ranged between both jazz and classical music, collaborating with a number of famous artists, and in recent years, he's begun to research into Brazilian and South American popular instrumental music. This recording, Traveler's Ways, is the fifth album by Samson and Piero Nunzi together, and on this album, we're featuring all of Samson's compositions. Like their previous duo album called Voyage in Time, the music is kind of a crossover between jazz, classical, and some more poppy music. And the compositions and improvisations kind of blend seamlessly into the arrangements of the songs. All of these works deal with the idea of travel, but the notes say often with the mental side of it, or the mindset, as exemplified by one of the compositions being called Free Spirit. So you can think about that as you check out these tunes. The recording starts out with The Road Less Traveled, There's a 16-measure rhythmic piano intro. Sumpson adds ringing bass figures to phrases. After last week's drum-led episode, we're hearing drums (laughs) all the time. We've got a lot of space in comparison on this recording. Mirabasi comes in with a clarinet melody, it's legato but with syncopated movement with some pauses for piano and bass answering lines, seems to be about 21 measures and it's hanging over while we hear the opening piano and bass section start going again to repeat things. Let's hear this album get going. rhythmic piano section like the intro, Samson gets a deep-toned bass solo, and then Mirabasi has his first clarinet solo. So let's hear some of his clarinet playing at that point. fluid clarinet playing, and Pierre Nunzi gets the spotlight. Next there, you hear with some speedy lined ideas back into the rhythmic intro idea, the clarinet melody and final rhythmic section that Mirand Basi joins in on. Track two is Twin Flames. This one has an unwinding music box intro of four measures. Mirabasi is then in on a 10-measure section of flowing clarinet melody before a 16-measure section where the piano takes over and exchanges. When Mirabasi comes back for some improvising, he impresses with some speedy double-time licks. Let's hear some of that once the tune gets going. ringing piano solo ideas from Pierre Nunzi there. Back into the clarinet melody, there's an outro of that music box idea that's like the beginning to a more slowed down interaction among the trio, and it's all over in less than three minutes. Track three is called A New Dawn. A soft and gentle number. There's a slow 16 measure melody that we hear from just clarinet and bass. Then Pieroninzi comes in for a time around with the bass on piano. Clarinet returns for another final section and an outro. Track four is called Jigsaw. On this tune, playful exchanges of triplet lines between clarinet and piano get joined by bass in spots. Let's hear it get going to around 45 seconds or so. Sampson is up first for a bass solo that rings out high, and then Pierre Nunzi has a solo that keeps changing up rhythmically. We can get both of those in in about a one-minute sample, so let's check those out. is off on a fluttery fluid solo next, and the three get more individual sections before a final run through the melody. Another short one at about three and a half minutes, and the ending slowdown is pretty unique too, so check that one out for yourself. Truck 5, Still Waters Run Deep. This one pulls you in with the piano and bass outlining a slow six-beat feel with tons of space before Mirabasi comes in with the sleepy clarinet melody. Let's hear it get going. There's a harmonic shift with some clarinet trills, and then a section with more piano and bass movement that establishes some momentum into an improvised solo from Mirabasi. Pierre Nunzi has a really nice piano solo on this number, so let's skip ahead and check out some of that. Turns from there for the final section to finish it kind of in an unresolved way. I like the really locked-in unwinding bass and piano lines under the clarinet. Track six is called Crossroads. Some tricky rhythms crossing around here. Pier gets it started on his own. It sounds like eight measures of 3-4 time plus one measure of 4-4 before that phrase repeats, and then clarinet and bass come in for a round of it. Let's check out the beginning of this tune. drops out for a bit and Minabasi gets to solo over just Samson's bass. I found this to be a real highlight and so let's check out some of his playing here. of clarinet playing there. Really speedy lines on the clarinet, and Pierre Nunzi has some of his own speedy lines in a solo that turns rhythmic, transitioning back to a final melody section with a different rhythmic nature to it. Track 7 is Leap of Faith. This has a tentative waltz mood to the opening with a descending clarinet line over just bass figures. Pierre Nunzi takes over for a section with a delicate dance with Samson's bass, After Mirabasi returns for a melody section, Samson has an improvised bass solo. Mirabasi has a solo with speedy and fluid lines, and Piernanzi gives his solo a rhythmic focus before Mirabasi's back with a descending line from the beginning into the melody. His soft ending notes show a great sense of control on the clarinet. Track 8 is Traveler's Tale. This tune is short at just 2 minutes and 15 seconds, but has some interesting things going on. It starts with a bass ostinato from Samson in 5-4 time for four measures. Piano and clarinet join in and the harmonies are kind of unusual but cute. Let's hear it get started. continues on, weaving more lines around over rhythmic piano and bass for the remainder of the tune. Track 9 is Resonance from the Past. Slow quarter note bass notes get joined by light piano chords until the legato clarinet starts and the piano has rising figures. Clarinet and piano have a nice unison line to end the section, and Mirabassi's solo here is really fluid, and then Piero has a short solo that shows off his delicate touch and fleet lines. Let's check out the piano on this tune. Sumpson gets to ring out a bass solo there too, before Mirabasi is back, and all three have some exchanges of improvised lines before a final clarinet melody section. Track 10 is called Free Spirit. This one has a Brazilian sense to it in the rhythmic piano chords and bass pulses under the flowing clarinet melody lines, and a little interlude for bass and piano before the final clarinet melody section. Sumpson has a bass solo first on this tune, and we haven't heard one of his solos yet, so let's hear his bass solo on this tune. He's back with another fast and fluid solo, and Pier Nunzi's solo has a lot of tricky rhythms while staying super smooth. He works into the interlude section heard previously, and the final section of the clarinet melody finishes it up. And the last track is Mysterious Ways, number 11. Even quarter note piano chords and ringing bass move along with some burbling clarinet lines for a mysterious start. This is something that really only the clarinet can do. I really
0: love that sound, too. <laughs> it's a great I, sound, It happens yeah. in classical music a lot, too. That right. You know, that yeah. kind of burbling sound that it makes.
1: Let's check out the beginning of this tune. The clarinet softens as the tune goes on, but Mirabasi adds an interesting pitch bend and some tension building notes on the way before an ending of more soft burbling lines. And that's it. It's a gentle recording and makes a contemplative atmosphere. That's due to the sparse instrumentation, lack of drums, but it's also in the character of Samson's compositions. They have a classical nature to them and a freshness of form and structure. Mirabasi has a fine tone on clarinet and great agility and fluidity, and Pierre Nunzi shows off his quieter side here, but his soft rhythms lock in with Samson's bass pulses intuitively, and you can tell that they've played a lot together. Samson's solos have a pleading nature to them that call out. Put this one on when you're in the mood to focus on beauty of tone and enjoy some introspection.
0: Yeah, I have something similar to say about that. This ensemble combines the tonal cleanness and clarity of a classical ensemble to the unpredictability of a jazz compositions and solos. So the record comes across as very pleasant, one that even the neighbors will love. (laughs) It's by no means empty either. There's content there and various moods as well. These guys keep it relatively quiet throughout and there's so much polish to the tone of all three instruments and to the recording that really caught my classical ear. Fan that I am of instrumental timbre and you know...
2: Mm.
0: The tracks are all on the quiet side, with only harmony occasionally taking us out of the comfortable spot. And that, only subtly and briefly, the album is all about, to me, taste and elegance. And I'd say, it wants to be your traveling companion on those long train rides and airport lines. It's really rather soothing.
1: Okay, our next recording something a little bit different. It's called Yafo Blossom. That's J-A-F-F-A. But I guess it's pronounced Yaffo. And this is on the Label Quest label by Palestinian born clarinetist Mohammed Najim. And thanks to Bayard Music, who I guess Label Quest is part of for the album credits because it's really hard to find anything online. <laughs> Actually, the album booklet doesn't really give me the information that I wanted either, but luckily their email did. So Najim is born in Jerusalem and raised in Bethlehem. And he won the first prize in Arabic music at the Palestinian National Competition in 2005. He studied clarinet and ney at the Edward Said National Conservatory of Music in Palestine and is a graduate of Regional Conservatory, CRR of Angiers. He's performed as a soloist for the Palestinian Youth Orchestra for several years. And he's performed at the Montreux Jazz Festival and European Jazz Festival in Qatar. So pronounced Yafo. It's an ancient Levantine port city founded by the Canaanites that is now part of southern Tel Aviv, Israel. Najem says, Yafo is a city that I have never been to physically, but experienced spiritually through the stories my grandfather told me. Yafo blossoms each day in my heart. It's not a place, it's a space which exists in the past, present, and
0: future. It kind of sounds influenced by uh, Italo Calvino's Invisible Cities. Mm-hmm. You know? I don't know if you've ever read that book, but similar sentiment
1: similar idea yeah hmm. so Mohammed najem on all compositions on the recording also clarinet and we're going to hear some nay as well hmm. clement pirou on piano arthur hen on bass baptiste Castet on drums and all of the arrangements on the album were done collectively the notes say we've got a couple guests to yousef Zaid on oud and percussion and Thomas Laurent on harmonica, which is an interesting mix. Recording mm. and mixing done by Julien Rebos and mastering by Manfred Luchter. Recording starts out with a tune called Bus, and this gets going with a tantalizing bass and piano opening for eight measures. Lots of space creates anticipation for Najem's clarinet melody that is minor and has cool ornaments. It develops over eight measure sections as it goes along. Let's hear this get going. East, but get ready for a little trip to Cuba as we go on (laughs) later in the song. Let's just skip ahead here and uh, check out this. piano solo there from Priol, and Najem returns with the clarinet melody and an unexpected ending. I won't spoil it for you, be sure to take a listen. Mm -hmm. Track two is called If You Want, a pleading solo bass line from Hen, that gets some piano chords sprinkled in from Priol before Najem comes in on the melody in the warm lower register of the clarinet. This we have to hear get going, it's really unique sounding. there before he continues developing that figure. It works into a more rock beat feel over descending bass and piano figures. Najim sticks closely to repeated riffs with some runs in between them. Those riffs get more ornate with more embellishments, and then there's some free improvisation. Finally, a new faster rhythmic section idea with spaces that will make you wonder if the tune is ended or not comes along. Let's listen to the ending of this song (laughs) so you can see what I mean. and it's really over that time (laughs) lots of surprises so far (laughs) track three is called instant love this one has some fun sharing of the melody with lawrence harmonica interestingly the tune starts in 5 8 time but has sections that switch up to 6 8 and it's pretty interesting let's hear it get going chill out over long bass notes and drum brushes for some softer melodic lines, and then a cool harmonica solo from Laurent. Uh, So let's listen to the harmonica solo on this tune. playing there mm-hmm. harmonica and clarinet get animated again working together on the final melody section to a cute ending track four is called flower and Youssef zaid joins in on oud here making a cool eight measure introduction section stand out over the really neat six beat rhythm najem joins the oud figures in unison before moving higher and adding more variation There's a really neat section of exchanges between clarinet and oud together and then piano and bass. Let's hear some of that interaction later on in the tune. solo and he gets a lot of
0: time to play going on and on. Yeah, it's such a great sound. It's it's an instrument. I wish we heard more. Um, ah, I
1: yeah. love it. Najem's back for some new stop-and-go sections into a steady beat like the original and a final chilled-out ending over piano ripples. Track 5 is the title track, yahoo Blossom, and it gets started with some cool bass figures in a 10-beat repeating pattern with drums. Najem comes in with some interesting modal melody lines uh, weaving with the piano. Let's hear that get started. variations of those figures and into an improvised clarinet solo from Najim. So let's hear some of that solo further on in the tune. To the earlier riffs, working with piano and bass, and the end phrase exchanges are fresh and cute. Track six is called a Few Steps Away. It's a minor ballad. A low register liquid clarinet tone takes the melody. It's kind of an AABA 32 measure form. The first section is a bit rubato before it repeats with more of a steady beat from brushed drums and bass pulses. There's a little tag repeat of the final phrases and then Priol gets a rhythmic piano section, and Najem returns with some clarinet melody into a rubato improvisation over piano ripples. It has a chanting quality to it, ending in some more modal explorations, trills, and a subtle pitch bend. Track 7 is called Floor Number 4. This has a very rhythmic melody in an A-B pattern, first on clarinet, and then repeated with focus on piano. It rather feels like it's in 4 beats, but the following clarinet section takes on a 6-beat feel. Creole has a really percolating improvised piano solo on this tune, so let's check out that a little bit. Jem returns with a more slowed tempo to a fermata, then a clarinet cadenza where he works some of the melody ideas very slowly. Suddenly it's back into tempo with the others joining in and taking the different sections of the melody we heard earlier to a slowed ending. Track 8, Les Gitans, The Gypsies. And now it's time for some ne. Let's check out this cool groove on bass and drums, ne melody a interaction with the piano and also Laurent joining in on harmonica. it spaces out over a drum beat with some great nay improvisations and piano ripples, and then bass pulses get it worked up into a groove again. Let's hear a little bit more of it later on in the tune. works it back to the melody riffs, getting joined by Laurent on harmonica to wrap it up. Track 9 is called The Way. This starts with some hypnotic unison bass and piano lines. The rhythm seems like it has a skip in it, but once the drums and rhythmic bass kick in, you'll realize it's actually in a 5-8 meter, and then that rhythm will make sense. Let's hear a little bit of this to get going. that come in are exchanged between clarinet and piano in a playful way as a return to the original figure before a bass solo from Hen. So let's hear some of his playing once he gets into his solo. returns with some lyrical clarinet improvisations as the groove dissipates things build up in intensity and then subside into some more bass groove and a rhythmic clarinet melody line the final section mirrors the bass and piano intro we heard at the start track ten is called This is a short piece with a six-beat feel that starts out with a syncopated melody in the lower register of the clarinet. Najem takes it up an octave, joined in unison by piano. Around midway through, bowed Bass doubles the clarinet lines in spots for a nice effect. It works into a swaying triplet feel for piano and clarinet exchanges near the end. Track 11, From Bethlehem to Angiers. Zayed is back with some oud on this one. It's got a seductive opening that seems to be in an 11-beat pattern before clarinet and oud work the melody lines together. Let's check it out. on morphing lines together. There's some haunting lower register clarinet getting a solo started over a pulsing high bass beat. It gets more animated with modal ideas and ornaments over rhythmic piano. Priol continues on with his own extended rhythmic piano solo from there. Castet gets to mix up some drum fills into a return of oud and clarinet exchanging lines to a slowed down ending of low clarinet notes and piano ripples. And the recording ends up with track 12 to My Father This has a slow, longing minor melody played in the lower register of the clarinet. Around midway through, things suddenly turn more animated and joyful with some higher register clarinet figures, so let's just check out that part for our final sample. works back to the low and longing clarinet melody for the final section and that's it i enjoyed this recording for a middle east modal diversion with jazz sentiments najim's clarinet tone is full and multifaceted with lots of technique impressive on the ne too i wanted to hear more of that especially yeah, that was with pretty cool. yeah. oud mixed in The structures in Najem's compositions are different from usual jazz tunes. We get sections built around modal scale melodies that get development through variations and often interesting trading off and weaving with other instruments, including the bass. I found that really interesting. Different meters and changes of tempo and phrasing come up in almost every tune. The style of improvisation fits this composition form more than usual jazz solos, but it still has a lot of spontaneity smooth clarinet and spicy modes. It's hard not to like this one.
0: Yeah, this was a real find and it's an album that I wouldn't have heard if we didn't do this podcast. (laughs) That just would have completely escaped me. I I was really hooked from the first modal melody right in the opening piano and bass line on bus, which was track one. Najem is a subtle player, uh, getting beautiful tones out of his clarinet and out of the ney too. And he's also got a gift for a melody, making everything a Peeling through his shaping of the material. And those modes, I just love modal harmony yeah. anyway. So I really love that. I enjoyed the use of the oud, as we said, in certain tracks, uh, particularly track four, where it takes an awesome solo, which you sampled for us. That was fantastic. Mm. It's great to hear again. Uh, it adds a lot of character, especially in compositions as modal as these. All of the bass solos on the album had a funky character to them, too. He's really yeah digging in. He's got some kind of feel. It's really great. And all the instrumentalists had a character specific to themselves, and they came in as separate layers, forming a complexly moving whole. So I just kind of like that, you know, like, there there are all these kind of like simple lines and they layer and become complex. It's a really interesting album. I liked it a lot. Did you figure out whether there's a CD of this or? It must be because there's a full, like,
1: PDF booklet as an insert, so.
0: Oh, wow. Okay. So there must be somewhere. I got to find it. Yeah.
1: Probably have to order it from France, I guess.
0: Oh, man, that's got to be a big shipping
1: charge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely uh, enjoyable. Lots to unpack and catch on repeated listenings in this one. Yeah. All right, we're going to end up the Woodwind Festival with a sax recording on Positone, from one of our favorite jazz labels. Diego Rivera's With Just a Word came out February 2nd. Diego Rivera, born in Ann Arbor, Michigan and raised not too far away in East Lansing he's born into a Mexican-American family we've heard him a few times on the podcast episode 52 that was called Sexually Promiscuous (laughs) (laughs) he's recording
0: Mestizo we got a million of them
1: (laughs) yep and then uh, episode 104 Tours de Force and that was his recording Love and Peace we also heard him on Jim Alfredson's Family Business also a Michigan musician we really like on organ and we always get a Great mix of tunes in the post-bop tradition with inspired solos from Rivera. Here on this recording, we've got Pete Rodriguez on trumpet, flugelhorn, and some congas that add a lot to the recording. We heard his recording, Obstacles, that was on the Sunnyside label back in episode 27 called Almost All American. As usual, on a positone recording, we've got the great Art Hirahara on piano. Of course, we've heard him too many times to list uh, in episodes, but he did make our 2023 Best of the Year list for his Echo Canyon recording, also on positone. I still listen to
0: that a lot. It's a really good album.
1: And the new face here, Lucas Curtis, bass player, uh, much in-demand young player for jazz and Latin jazz, played with uh, Eddie Palmieri, uh, among others. And we've got the great Rudy Royston on drums. As always on Positone, Mark Free, the producer, Nick O'Toole engineer. This was recorded November 20th, 2022 at Acoustic Recording in Brooklyn, New York, Mike. Yeah. Recording starts out with Qvo. that's Q hyphen V-O, a Rivera original. A measure of drums from Royston gets it going. Then a 16 measure intro with funky piano and bass synced with the left hand of the piano. Rodriguez's congas are on a track in the mix too. I say 16 measures. I don't know how it's notated since it's a really subdivided even beat. The horn melody is an ABA or AABBAA structure, (laughs) however you count it out. Mm -hmm. Uh, The second B section is different though. Let's hear it get going. first for a solo, and if you don't know his sound, let's hear a little sample of that. Good phrasing. Well, Rodriguez is coming in there. You hear on trumpet, very nice agility and snappy rhythmic licks in his solo, and some cool fast false fingering as well. Hirahara has an energetic and funky solo too, really hammering out some percussive chords. And they get back to the intro idea and take another run through the melody to finish it up. Nice drum fills from Royston at the end. Track two, Europa. It's an instrumental tune from Carlos Santana from mm. his album Amigos it was written by Santana and Tom Coster. It came out in 1976. It's got a cool kind of 16-bar progression to it. It goes around like the circle of fifths. It's kind of similar to the way Autumn Leaves moves. And what's neat about the tune is every other verse ends with a Picardy cadence, so it goes to the major and it's kind of a neat effect. Here, Rippling rubato piano from Hirahara and sax lines from Rivera wash into this memorable melody. Royston fills in with cymbals and that Picardy third cadence is sweet when they get to it on a hold, and then it gets a steady beat with conga for more of the sax melody. Let's hear some of that once we get into the tune and then into the steady tempo. sax melody, Hirohara keeps some rhythmic chords going before a more melodic and nicely phrased solo, so let's hear some of what he plays on this tune. for a smooth melodic solo with great tone, connecting back to the melody for a final run, and tasty piano droplets from Hirohara at the end. Track 3 is another Rivera original, once again, always. Royston gets this kicked in with a little drum intro. It's a hard swinging, hard bop melody in an AAB form. They go around twice over a nice bass walk from Curtis, rivera rodriguez and hirohada all have great swinging solos on this one and they give it a little slowed extended final section for royston to get some cool fills in track four with just a word another rivera original the title track royston's rolls and hirohada's chords are super tasty on the intro The horn melody has a sublime minor mood in a 32 measure AABA form. On the B section, the bass gets into loping walk for a nice contrast. We won't get that far with this sample, but I want you to hear it get started. a slow-burning solo on this one with relaxed phrasing that comes up to a nice high cry. Hirohara has a solo with some tremolos and relaxed descending lines before the horns are back with the melody once again. Track 5, another Rivera original, Tinte Latino. The horns burst in on this one with an opening line into a 16-measure intro with ringing bass figures from Curtis. This is like the first tune where it's got a a subdivided double dub beat it's like a A B A A B B A form with lots of excitement from Royston underneath. Rivera solos first with a lot of motion and well connected phrases, but let's check out Rodriguez's trumpet solo on this one. keeps up the energy in his solo too with speedy runs and percussive chords. They have a little vamp for Royston to work up excitement into a final run through the melody with the tag phrase of what we heard to start the tune. Trek 6, Pee Wee. This is by drummer Tony Williams from Miles Davis' 1967 recording Sorcerer. This is a sparse and wispy tune with a lovely rubato intro from Hirahara. Who also has a delicate solo after Rivera's melody. Royston paints cymbal textures lightly to fill things out, and Curtis has a heartbeat like bass figures and gets a solo on this one, so let's hear his bass playing here. with some gentle melody to finish up the tune. Track seven, Song of the Underground Railroad. This is just notated as traditional, but I don't think it was traditionally played like this. Uh, Royston gets his moment on this tune to start things out, and Rivera comes in over just the drums before bass and piano join in. It's really energetic, so let's hear this get going. exciting solo from there, climaxing in some ringing chords before Rivera's back for his own solo that gets some real edgy harmonic explorations. It kind of reminds me of that Sonny Rollins live recording G-Man. It's got that intensity to it. Royston gets an impossibly busy but tight solo before Rivera is back with the melody and a final slow phrase to end it. Track eight, A Rivera original dignified response, Rodriguez rejoins for this lovely ballad with delicate horn lines. After a short horn intro phrase, the melody is a 16 measure construction. They go around twice and then there's a six measure transition section. Rodriguez has a fine flugelhorn solo on this one, so let's check out some of his flugelhorn playing. solos next, picking up on some of Rodriguez's final interval ideas and building up some passion, and Hirahara has a solo that really shows off his nuanced articulation before the horn melody returns, just once around this time and ending with the transition section we heard before. Track nine is called Mandela's Muse. This is a tune by Detroit pianist Ken Cox. I'm not sure if he ever recorded it. It's hard to find his albums, but bassist Rodney Whitaker did on his 1996 recording Children of the Light. This is a really cool minor waltzing tune. Curtis gets it going with an awesome ostinato bass, joined by Hirahara on the eight-measure intro. The melody structure is neat. There's a repeating eight-measure A section, a longer 16-measure B section with a one-measure gap before the A again, and then a new final section of soft notes building up. It'll go a little bit long, but it's a real cool tune construction, so I want you to hear it. First for an exciting solo, Rodriguez has some super speedy figures and lines in his solo on this one, with trills and a tension building pause, and the rhythm section changes up the feel in a fun way for the start of Rivera's solo that gets bluesy and ends in a cry before they get back to the melody to close it out. And the recording ends up with Rivera's final original machete, a super fun Latin beat tune with Rodriguez back adding a conga track on this one. The melody is in an ABA form with 16 measure sections. Hirohara takes the B section on piano. Let's hear it get going. his solo first, but let's hear one more from the leader Rivera on his last solo on the album. Let's check it out. exciting solo there too. He's really good at Latin rhythm energy. Curtis gets to keep the bass moving along while drums and conga get a workout session before Hirohara signals the horn melody back in for a final exposition. As with his previous recordings, Rivera serves up a menu of great post-bop jazz with fresh originals, interesting covers of Santana, Ken Cox, and Tony Williams tunes, and that splash of Latin spice to keep the blood pumping. Rodriguez's congas are part of that spicy recipe, and his trumpet solos are exciting and a good match for Rivera's own solos. Hirahara and Royston are great as always, shining through in their spots, and the new face to us... Lucas Curtis on bass fits in well sounding intuitive in all the great rhythm section grooves on this recording another great positone release you should definitely add to your collection
0: yeah because I loved last year's uh, Diego Rivera record too and now this one I really like as well I just love the quality of the playing on this album Rivera himself is an exciting player with upbeat and immediately appealing tunes and solos Um, that continues here particularly on the first funky track Who's that Cuvo that's called Q equals VO. He's got a great sense of melody, apparent from the solos, and Hidahara. Man, he's all class on this album, just like on Echo Canyon. I just really loved uh, his playing here. With good soloing ideas and appealing tone throughout. Rudy Royson's drums are hard-hitting. Every time he had a solo, I was pretty riveted. He's a great drummer. Really, everyone has an individual approach that nevertheless fits in and serves the music. It's a really enjoyable album. By the way, one thing about this album, he's pretty much followed this kind of like upbeat performance on all the odd-numbered tracks followed by a ballad on the even-numbered tracks except oh, for the last one mm. machete yeah it kind of reminded me of like Beethoven's symphonies because all the adventurous ones are the odd-numbered ones <laughs> and the the more conservative ones are the even-numbered ones mm. so, I don't know it kind of put me in mind of that. I just thought I'd throw that out there
1: all right well there you go an evening with woodwinds uh, and uh, some interesting modes uh, all kinds of yeah. flutes uh, really I like this episode a lot
0: I did, too. And not only that, it's a special episode for us. I should have mentioned this at the beginning, I guess. But we're recording on February 11, 2024. This is exactly three years after we recorded our first ever episode. Yeah. That was in February 11, 2021. And here we are.
1: Happy anniversary, Mike.
0: Yeah. Happy anniversary, Russ. And uh, the anniversary of the podcast actually being published is February 15th. Right. So that's going to be this week.
1: We'll get this one out tomorrow, as usual, right. on Monday, and we'll get ready for episode 153 next week. And we're going to go back to the keyboards, I think, for next week, aren't we?
0: We are, yeah. There are two Marc-Andre Amlan records out, and uh, I, I skipped the last one, which is really great. It was a 4A Parker Rolls and Nocturnes. It was just two out, two CDs. It was just too much of right. a good thing, I felt like. And it was really great, though. But this time we have some of Marc-Andre Emlon's, um solo piano recordings. And it turns out he also is the pianist on a recording of, a new recording of Messiaen's Turangalila Symphony, mm. which we haven't covered on the podcast yet, I don't think. And uh, then I've got some Baroque uh, harpsichord from Andreas Steyer, a harpsichordist we both really love because he's the guy who made the recording of the uh, C.P.E. Bach.
1: Oh, right, yeah
0: keyboard concertos back in 2012 that really turned us on to that composer. So I'm really looking forward to hearing what he's got to offer here.
1: Cool. On the jazz side, I've got a piano trio from Georgian-born and now New York-based pianist Giorgi Mikadze. I guess he's working like Georgian folk songs and things, which I know (laughs) nothing about, (laughs) into this, So that'll take a little bit of research to find out. And then we've got a piano trio with trumpet from pianist Jeffrey Dean. And we've also got a really exciting recording from pianist Lawrence Fields. It's his debut as a leader. So we'll be all piano focused or keyboard focused in classical with some harpsichord as well. So stay tuned for that. The playlist, if you want to check out those albums early, will be up on Deezer and also with a link on our Facebook page a couple hours after this episode gets published. As always, we want to say thanks to Fast Signs of Staten Island for our glowing neon logo. And don't forget to check out the same difference, Two Jazz Fans, One Jazz Standard Podcast. Their little audio promo will follow this podcast broadcast. Any final words, Mike?
0: Yeah, I don't think it's any coincidence that the Knob Creek has appeared on the shelves again at the same time that we're doing our third anniversary <laughs> podcast. So I think this uh, calls for a drink. I agree. Yeah, <laughs> That's what I think I'll do right now once we yeah. sign off. Once we sign off. All
1: right. So mm. look forward to some keyboards next week. This has been episode 152 of Adult Music we'll see you again next time until then keep listening
0: same difference two jazz fans one jazz standard a review of a single jazz standard through music history and stories and this is aj and this is johnny if you are a jazz fan and you like jazz standards